Welcome to the London Health Podcast, the ninth in our series of podcasts on the power of practice nursing, the future of general practice nursing in London. My name is Imogen Staverley. I'm a GP at Bedworth Health Centre and workforce lead for the Transforming Primary Care Team in London. Today, Jill Rogers provides insights, reflections and learning from those working to influence and support dynamic risk assessment in primary care. This podcast demonstrates the leadership and energy and learning required to support primary care nurses to feel safe at work. It also reminds us of the incredible value that collaboration brings. My name is Jill Rogers and I'm the programme lead for the General Practice Nursing 10 Point Plan and support um, NHS E&I in that work. And today um, we are interviewing um, three people. So I'm going to introduce them. Uh, Janine LaRosa, Head of Equality and Inclusion for London Region. Marie Franklin, Director of Operations for First Care Group Practice in Hillingdon and Workforce uh, Lead for Non-Clinical Staff in Hillingdon. And Julie Roy, Advanced Nurse Practitioner and Lewisham Primary Care Nurse Consultant and also co-chairs the National General Practice Nursing um, BAME Group. So we um, have a number of uh, questions and I'm going to ask uh, Janine you first, please. Um, Can you just give an outline about uh, what was expected of general practice in implementing risk assessment? As risk assessment lead um, for London, the the work that we went through was to introduce basically a three part process and the expectation um, sat across all of the providers, including GPs. Um, And so the first part was to carry out a workplace risk assessment, which is to understand what the COVID-19 risk looks like in terms of the workplace, the building, the amount of space, the ventilation and so on, and and the nature of the work that would be carried out there. Um, The second was to do a workforce risk assessment, and that's understanding, looking at the um, demographics of their staff, Um, Were there any likely um, key risk groups they need to think about in terms of how they might potentially mitigate the way that the work was done? And then the final element is the individual risk assessment. And that's for the line manager or supervisor to have a one to one conversation with their staff member, um, bringing to the table what they knew about the work that the individual did alongside the individual's own um, risk profile to start to understand um, what the COVID-19 risk may be for that individual. And within London, we were very much encouraging um, that these risk assessments would be a meaningful conversation. Um, So not just looking for a tick box of people to to look to think around um, how are people feeling? Because at this time, you have to remember the or the context that we were in at that time where we were seeing the disproportionate impact on people from a black, Asian and minority ethnic background of COVID-19. The information was changing in terms of which groups were most likely to be at risk. So it was very important that those conversations were pastoral in allowing people the time and space to talk about their concerns um, and also to work, think about how they might mitigate those risks to keep people in work because I think that's the other key the the key expectation was that the risk assessments were not being used to say okay don't come to work but to think about okay based on your risk profile what can we do to keep you safe at work. Okay Janine I mean it must have been uh, you know pretty frenetic work given the sort of scale and pace of the pandemic. Um, So Julie if I can come to you first do you have any comments on Janine's um, thoughts about this in terms of practice nursing? Yeah, you know, the uh, 
the risk assessments um, and how the practices dealt with it at the beginning, I think there was a bit of a panic for everybody. Um, and so people and surgery started to make their own decisions um, in the beginning. Um, and so some were working from home and that was absolutely fine until we got a bit more further guidance. So once we did have the guidance, that was helpful. But that first initial part, it was unusual. Nobody knew what to do, really. Um, so it, it's good. And I'm glad that it's still we're still putting this out about risk assessments and it, we're getting more clarity about it as we're going along. Yeah, absolutely agree with you there. And and it has been very much an iterative process. And within London in particular, our learning was that the initial steer, which was that these should be targeted as BAME, so Black, Asian and Minority Ethnic Risk Assessments, was not helpful in the London context. And so for us as a region, what we've been doing is encouraging everybody to have a risk assessment. And I think that that's important. And as, as, you, as you mentioned there, Julie, this is an ongoing piece of work. And so those risk assessments should be treated as living documents or we're referring back to. Is anything changing? How are you feeling? Is the mitigation that we put in place still working for you? Um, and so on. So it's opening up and continuing that conversation. OK, so Marie, from a, a general, you know, somebody who's involved in operationally running general practices, how, how was it for you in the beginning of the pandemic in terms of implementing the risk assessments? Yeah, I mean, uh, we had an electronic risk assessment that we sent out to all members of staff um, and then we reviewed it individually with them. I think uh, one of the things I would say um, is that in general practice, you tend to find that um, a lack of training uh, for some of the practice managers in some areas within health and safety, particular risk assessments. Um, and I think that's something that we need to look at centrally. Um, because, you know, it's one thing having instructions and a risk assessment come through, but then what do you do with that? Janine, do you want to respond to that? I, I think you're exactly right there. And we did run um, during the summer a number of webinars which were aimed at practice managers um, to help them in closing that gap around how do I have this conversation? Because um, often the relationship between the line manager and, and their staff was very much a transactional one. So if we're asking people to then talk about how they're feeling and their COVID risk and perhaps health conditions that they haven't disclosed to their managers, we acknowledge that that's really difficult. Um, and so we, we, we had run a series of webinars. I think the one thing I would change is perhaps we would have done more of them and and, and, and kept them running for, for longer. Um, because as you say, Marie, that's a, that's a key gap that we that this process has identified not, okay. not only just that actually what what it showed to me was there was the lack of risk assessment that's out there that everybody was in a little bit of a panic so as I said some places they were you know really really good and some weren't so good and it's that issue of what are we risk assessing what are we going to what should we put on there and people were scrambling trying to find some documents of some kind that they could use and so that's what it highlighted to me that these are procedures that we really should be doing all the time we should have had risk assessments and had information about staff before all of this happened but it just shows that where we must be not on the back foot that we should be on the front foot with all of these things Thank you very much. Um, so Julie coming, coming to you now um, I'm wondering um, in the presence of uh, potentially limited access to risk assessment, as you've raised, 
Um, how did uh, the practices that you're involved in and the nurses that you work with uh, mitigate against sending their staff home? And are there any good areas of good practice that you could highlight that people could learn from? Well, originally, as I said, there was a lot of um, worry and fear and a lot of the practices had absolutely excellent practice. I must be honest. Um, they um, shut everything down. Um, you know, like there wasn't all the face to face contact and we got lots of information that came through very, very fast. However, you know, there were some surgeries and some um, areas that used the risk assessment unfairly against some of the staff who had comorbidities and it wasn't a case of okay just take some time off sick or um, work from home it was don't come in and that was where there was a major issue um, that I would say for me but we did have a lot of um, the nurses who had a lot of underlying health conditions and their their managers just took their care into such high esteem and it showed me how much they appreciated those nurses um, to the point that you know even when they were allowed to come back some of them were still contacting me saying is it okay for them to come back seeing patients face to face so it wasn't all doom and gloom you know so you do have um, the, the good side and you do have the, the negative side which just shows that you know the negative we, we usually focus on that quite a lot and say this was absolutely awful but as I said I've got staff that have said I was treated so very well and they still even up to now I'm still shielded and I work from home and I do my triaging from home because my, my practice appreciates my contribution to the surgery and so in, when we're looking at that you know the mitigation um, it's, it's you know sometimes when looking at how the people who weren't appreciated you did have that that came up and that was very upsetting and it was clearly um, I would say more towards um, the BME um, nurses. Uh, some of them obviously were non-BME as well, um, but the main ones that I had contact with and that would contact me, they were BME nurses that were telling me that um, my practice, um, there are issues or they have sent me home um, and that I'm on sick pay and lots of investigations. And that was a major concern. And that worried me because what we want is for staff to feel supported to and they feel the confidence to tell us about any underlying health conditions. We don't want them to hide these things. We don't want them to feel that a risk assessment will cause them to kind of lose their job, number one. We don't want a risk assessment um, to be something that stops people from getting jobs um, or looking at their CV or their application and kind of making an assumption before they even come in. When you see black Asian minority person coming in, right, yeah, look at the age and they're all, they're going to be moderate. You know, what are we going to do with this person so you already cut them off so we this is not supposed to be a negative thing this is support the staff and show how much we appreciate them and the worth that they have and for majority of surgeries they did that but you always have the few that don't well Julie it's it's very heartening to hear um, the care that your colleagues are demonstrating and showing even now to their staff I think that that's absolutely wonderful um, I mean any comments Marie? Um, no I'm slightly horrified by what you've said if I'm honest um, 
I'm really sorry that sort of some of your colleagues actually experienced that. Uh, but again, I think that comes down to, I mean, one thing I would say to Janine, if there's anything that she can do about training and support for practice managers, um, I think that's the one thing that has really come out of this exercise for myself. Um, yeah, I'm just really surprised, Julie, and sorry to hear that. Janine? I think um, the thing I would say there is that, yes, we do need to do a lot more work with line managers and supervisors because they are the people who create, as Judy's pointed out, the culture that all of our staff working in the NHS face every day. Um, and so we've just launched in the London region the race strategy. And within the race strategy, we have an explicit recommendation, which is to look at how we can build a, a, a standard, a level of competence for line managers around race and around cultural awareness and also how to have conversations that make a difference because for me having been working in the risk assessments and and working in the region as equality and inclusion lead at this time it's never been more obvious and more important the need for us to tackle the inequalities that Julie has just articulated there really clearly um, and so within the race strategy, that's what we're aiming to do. There's been a commitment to to, the, to do this work. And within that, we call out specifically primary care and the need to think about how we can work with primary care and also with the other professions to think about how we can tailor the recommendations in the race strategy to meet the needs of those of people working that in those um organizations but also the practice managers as well and the challenges that they face so um yes that's going to be the work that we're doing over the next um coming weeks months and years really because it's a 10-year commitment that we've entered into brilliant um well i mean given the variability in the system marie if i could come to you um with your question because actually julie uh, talked about some positive things but also some negative things which are you know as, as marie said pretty shocking but how can we marie encourage employers so that black and ethnic minority nurses have confidence in the system so that they can report underlying health conditions to their employers without fear um, I think, first of all, it's very much about uh, recognising that there's a moral and statutory duty of care to protect and preserve our employees' health and safety at work. Um, I think a lot of the issue is cultural. I think it depends on the culture within the practices, and I think that has to change. Um, I think any part of a normal job for anyone working within the NHS to actually should be to actually be able to raise concerns um, and feel confident that there's going to be no redress if they do that. I think there should be more flexible and open-minded approaches as well with less rigid procedures around increasing communication which in turn helps obviously relationship building within teams within general practice. And the aim of any organisation with the NHS is to create the right conditions for staff to speak up. And it should be normal for anyone, like I said, within the NHS to actually be able to do this. As well as the, the culture, there's obviously other concerns like clarity and processes, stronger leadership, better accountability and more transparency. But as a, as a minimum, uh, we should be offering sort of, um, you know, risk assessments to all staff making sure that COVID testing is a priority for our staff, um, along with other 
areas as well. So making sure that there's access to support and wellbeing services for any staff as well, should they need it. Thank you, Marie. That, that's really helpful information. Um, Janine, would you like to comment on that? Yeah, I, just to say that I agree. I think this speaks to a much bigger programme of work. And I think the experience of staff and the variable, the hugely variable experience of staff during the first wave of, of COVID um, has highlighted the the need for all of the work and the time that we're going to invest in this going forward because staff we, you know, we've had the res data the workforce race equality standard data for london which over the last five years has shown consistently that we do fall behind by many of the indicators and the thing we have to mention there is that the res has not included data from gp practices so um that's that's the experience of staff working within the trust. But I think there's something there that we need to think about. How are we monitoring and understanding the experience of our staff work, staff working in GPs? And then what can we do to ensure that we have a, a consistent and clear programme of work to look at ensuring that there's that, that standard, that cultural awareness that I've already talked about before, um, that staff feel confident and supported to speak up and to raise their concerns um, without redress. I think that's really, really important because it's that it, what we end up then is with a, with a fear factor where something happens in one organisation and staff in another organisation hear about it and think, actually, that might happen to me too. So I'm not going to, to speak out about that. So it's, what can we put in place to support all of our people working within London? Thank you. Julie? Um, just what Janine said, um, just reiterate something that um, Maria said um, in regards to the race and quality standards within our borough we um, completed um, one we were the first ones in primary care to complete um, the race and quality so and we saw the same results that you can see um, in secondary care which was um, disheartening and we are working on that to make sure that we can make a difference even within the six boroughs that we all work with working really really hard to make sure that we make a strong difference that we can impact that there is true equality and equity that is seen throughout and that this is normal um, and just in regards to what Maria said really stood out for me is that we should already be having quality um, analysis that's going on. We know we've got um, CQC, um, the, the Care Quality Commission. We know we have those things and we know all of the, the things that happen where everyone cleans up um, just to make things look good. We want this to be standard. This is standard that within your surgery, all of those things are, are done straight away. Your risk assessment, when you join your job, you know, your COVID testing, when you join your job, the same way we had to do your, your checks to make sure you're well to work. All of those things, occupational health, we shouldn't be struggling because it's primary care. If you go into secondary care, everything's totally different. So we want that same quality to run right through with what we're doing in primary care because we're just as important as as those who are in secondary care and sometimes I think that we get a little bit swept under the carpet a little bit forgotten of all the work that and everything that goes into every single area of primary care and there was a lot and so I would support that we do have that regular um, quality analysis that's going on throughout the surgeries and that's 
our colleagues and that us ourselves, we don't feel that there's going to be any reprisal if we report any underlying health conditions that we feel support and we know that our employers are working with us because we half the time most people don't really want to be sick. Well, thank thank you very much. Any any final comments then on what we've covered today? There was a report, um, the Freedom to Speak Up. Um, it was by Sir Robert Francis, and it was the 20 principles and actions which aim to create the right conditions for NHS staff to speak up. Um, and I thought that was really interesting because it covered primary care and secondary care. And actually, there are some differences. But overall, I thought it was a very useful read, especially for employers. I just find that we've got a lot of speak up guardians now, you know, mm-hmm. with, and, and I'm hearing it so much. You've got a speak up guardian in this borough and that borough. And I'm like, wow, you know, I don't I don't remember really hearing about speak up guardians before because we've realised the impact that COVID-19 has had on us. And I think it's not just that, we've realised the impact that it's had on the BAME community and just Mm -hmm. looking at, it's just gone far and wide, uh, the disparities that we are seeing. And I think a lot of people have just started to speak out. I think people got to to the point where I can't keep quiet anymore. So the speak out now is there and I think it's fantastic, but we must speak out in the right place and in the right forum to really make the difference that we want to and the change that we want to. Yeah, and that's so important. And um, I will mention the the London Workforce Race Strategy again, because I would encourage you all and all of your listeners to, to make the time to take a look and to read through that, because it outlines some key critical recommendations. And it also lays out really clearly the data. So back to Julie's point and that call for data and understanding what the situation is in London at the moment. Um, and in terms of freedom to speak up, we have a recommendation in the strategy which is calling for increased representation of the Sweden Speak Up Guardian. So increased BAME, Black, Asian, minority, ethnic representation, because um, again, as we look at the data that we have, which is at a national level, it does look as though people from Black, Asian, minority, ethnic communities are underrepresented as Freedom mm-hmm. Speak Up Guardians. So I'd encourage your listeners to put their hand up and, and, and say, yes, I'd love to be a, a Freedom Speak Up Guardian. And also to please um, get in touch with me or get in touch with my team or put some, some links out to your listeners mm-hmm. um, to, to come back to us with any ideas for things we might look to do within primary care specifically, because I'm working with Binduaka and his team to look at how we can take the work of the region strategy and and develop a specific program, as I said already, for people working within primary care. Okay. Well, I'd I'd like to thank all three of you so much um, for your commitment, hard work and dedication to um, furthering this issue within um, general practice. And, you know, considering we've got 1,200 GP employers, um, it's it's a tall order. But I think this afternoon we've covered a lot of, of areas that people might find helpful. And Janine, it's great that you're willing to be contacted and uh, we'll certainly make sure that your email address is out there. So just really thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Jill. I want to thank Jill, Janine, Marie and Julie for their contribution because it has given us tangible ways to improve the risk assessment process and to listen and support primary care nurses during COVID and beyond. The email address for more info on the London Race Strategy is london.racestrategy at nhs.net. 
By listening and giving primary care nurses a voice, we will enable them to support their GP family, their patients, and to help shape the wider system. I want to thank HEE, NHSE and I, Capital Nurse and HLP for their support in creating this podcast. We are bringing you a series of podcasts highlighting the power of practice nursing. Please do subscribe to our series. Do also share your own stories of practice nursing on social media with the hashtag LondonGPN. We look forward to hearing from you.